Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, this is Patrick. Thanks for listening. I wanted to let you all know about Behind the Knife's brand new suture practice kit, not time board, and detailed how-to videos. So we put this resource together to ensure that anyone learning surgical skills is ready to dominate the day. The suture kit contains everything you need, including high-quality surgical instruments, multiple different types of suture, and a best-in-class suturing pad. The Knot Titan Simulator has features for beginners and for those with more advanced skills. The simulator includes a freestanding hook that's ideal for high-repetition knot tying practice, a hook that is set within a cylinder that replicates tying knots in a deep body cavity, and adjustable bands to simulate tying knots under tension. We're also particularly proud of our 16 how-to videos for both right and left-handed learners. These are high-quality videos that take you through key surgical skills step-by-step. The videos cover a number of high-yield topics including common instruments, knot tying skills, subcuticular suturing, and how to close a port site, among others. Check out the show notes or head to our website at BehindTheKnife.org for more information. The treatment of renally mediated hyperparathyroidism, or what some refer to as secondary hyperparathyroidism and tertiary hyperparathyroidism, begins with medical management, but often necessitates parathyroidectomy for definitive treatment to remove the source of excess parathyroid hormone. The management of renally mediated hyperparathyroidism calls for a nuanced, multidisciplinary approach given the complex physiologic alterations resulting from underlying kidney disease. The diagnosis and management of secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism resulting from etiologies not related to kidney disease such as gastric bypass, medications driving parathyroid hormone secretion, and other disorders were outside the scope of these guidelines. Behind the Knife Endocrine Surgery is here live and in person in Birmingham, Alabama at the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons meeting. Welcome to another Endocrine Surgery podcast. I'm Barb Miller from The Ohio State University. I'll be joined today by some of our favorite endocrine surgeons, Dr. Herb Chen, who's the chair of the Department of Surgery at University of Alabama in Birmingham, Dr. Sophie Dream, who's an endocrine surgeon and assistant professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Also joining us is Dr. Jessica McMullen, who's the current endocrine surgery fellow at UAB and soon will be transitioning to start an endocrine surgery program at the University of Utah. In the summer of 2022, the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons published the first set of guidelines describing the definitive surgical management of secondary and tertiary renal hyperparathyroidism. This was published in the Annals of Surgery and it's available online as well as through the website of the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons at www.endocrinesurgery.org. While the AAES was in Birmingham for its annual meeting, we thought it would be the perfect opportunity to go more in-depth into these guidelines with Dr. Dream, who was the first author on these guidelines, and Dr. Chen, who was a senior author of these guidelines. Welcome, everybody, and what a fantastic meeting it was here in Birmingham. Thank you so much for having us. Great to be here. 
So Herm, why don't you tell us a little bit about the impetus for creation of these guidelines? Where was the gap and what was the thought process and considerations when initially pulling together the writing group for these guidelines? Thanks, Barb. And I think that we, as members of the AAES, have put together many, many guidelines regarding the definitive management of thyroid, parathyroid, and adrenal disease. But in this particular case, we had not tackled the issue of secondary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism, or what we uh, title renal uh, hyperparathyroidism. And uh, part of it is because the there's a lot of controversy surrounding this. And I would say the data regarding uh, management of these patients is probably not as robust as with the other guidelines we've taken on. And because a lot of the decisions that are made about whether or not to surgically intervene on patients with renal-based hyperparathyroidism are done in conjunction with nephrologists who primarily manage these patients, we thought it was very important not only for the AES to do the guidelines, but to partner with the American Society of Nephrology, the largest group of uh, nephrologists in the country. And so when we decided to put together these guidelines, it so happened to be that the president of the uh, American Society of Nephrology happened to be on the faculty here at UAB, the executive vice dean. And so we had a great conversation about what it would mean for our two groups to partner to try to get through some of these difficult issues and come up with guidelines uh, from both of our organizations, which we both guide not only surgeons, but also nephrologists about when is the best time to intervene and what is the best treatment for these patients with renal-based hyperparathyroidism. All right. So let's start off by talking about evaluation of someone with secondary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism. And most of these patients are referred by our colleagues in nephrology. So Jessica, why don't you tell us a little bit about the biochemical differences between patients with primary, secondary, and tertiary hyperparathyroidism in terms of the pattern of calcium, parathyroid hormone, 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels that we see, just so we can kind of define, define the disease processes. Yeah, so I think this is one of the most confusing things that was to me as a trainee. So primary hyperparathyroidism uh, is an elevation of PTH from a primary source, an adenoma or hyperplastic parathyroids. This is typically someone with elevated calcium and elevated PTH with normal vitamin D levels. Secondary hyperparathyroidism is an elevation secondary to something. So most commonly, we talk about this secondary to chronic kidney disease. With kidney disease, the kidney loses the capacity to maintain normal phosphorus and calcium homeostasis. And so you see PTH levels go up with either a normal calcium or even low calcium level and typically low vitamin D. As your chronic kidney disease progresses, end-stage renal disease patients start developing foregland enlargement. And so this can eventually develop into tertiary hyperparathyroidism, which is characterized by inappropriately increased PTH despite hypercalcemia because these glands become autonomously functioning. And so these hypertrophied parathyroid glands become refractory to medical management. This is most often seen in patients on long-term dialysis or after kidney transplantation. Yeah, I think we should also say that there are many considerations when when interpreting biochemical values that can falsely decrease or falsely elevate any of these levels. And so it's really important to review medications uh, that the patient is taking, such as calcimimetics, that may decrease the calcium level, that could obscure identifying hypercalcemia. 
And I think we should also um, mention that ionized calcium is really important in understanding the true calcium level, as the serum calcium levels are often falsely low. So um, why don't you keep going, Jessica, and tell us a little bit about the, the biochemical changes that happen with worsening chronic kidney disease, and then also kind of tell us the mechanism by which the calcimimetics work. Yeah. So secondary hyperparathyroidism develops because of an adaptation to alterations in the interaction between your calcium, vitamin D, and fibroblast growth factor 23. And so what initially is a physiologic adaptation eventually becomes pathologic. And so the homeostasis of your calcium is done through PTH, um, which is done by increasing your bone mineral dissolution, increasing your kidney reabsorption, uh, increasing the conversion of your 25-hydroxy vitamin D to calcitriol, the biologically active form, um, and then indirectly it's by enhancing the GI absorption of calcium and phosphorus. And so with kidney disease, you lose some of this ability to keep these chemicals in balance. And eventually, calcium-sensing receptors mediate the response of PTH, and so this changes in response to ionized calcium concentrations. And these both, the calcium-sensing receptors and vitamin D receptors, get downregulated in these hyperplastic parathyroid glands, which contributes ultimately to resistance to calcitriol, calcimimetics, and calcium. Um, and so calcimimetics are a medication that often mimic the effect of hypercalcemia on some of these calcium-sensing receptors, which decreases your PTH levels and was ultimately approved for use in secondary hyperparathyroidism and chronic kidney disease patients on dialysis. And this ultimately leads to your calcium levels being lowered. Okay. Well, now that we've talked about the biochemistry, um, Sophie, what's the usual scenario um, by which these patients arrive in your, in your office? Tell us a little bit about indications um, for referral to an endocrine surgeon too. Yeah. So parathyroidectomy has the potential to reduce cardiovascular and all-cause mortality in patients with secondary hyperparathyroid. So who should have surgery is a very tough question. Um, where I think a little bit of background on what, what your PTH level should be, I think is helpful. So historic studies showed that there's a blunted skeletal response to PTH in patients with advanced kidney disease and a necessary elevation in PTH adaptive response. Uh, so the first Cadillo diet guidelines in 2003 defined normal PTH range um, for patients with CKD to be between 150 and 300 to optimize bone health based on bone biopsies, recommending that um, the PTH level should be really greater than 1,000. Later in 2020, there was a large cohort study, the Dialysis Outcomes and Practice Patterns, or DOPS trial, that looked at patients for at least 12 months in Europe, Canada, and the U.S., and they, when they adjusted for all factors, they found that there was a higher risk of mortality in patients when their PTH level was greater than 600. So there is a point at which the PTH shifts from an adaptive physiologic response to a pathologic one. Um, so when we made our recommendations for indications for parathyroidectomy in this patient population, we aligned them with the Cadillo guidelines. So if their PTH exceeds greater than nine times the upper limit of normal, um, and the patient has refractory disease to medical therapy, and they have any deleterious effects of secondary hyperparathyroidism, then they're, they should be referred for surgery. Um, so those deleterious effects are uncontrolled hypercalcemia, hyperphosphatemia, calciphylaxis or severe extraskeletal calcifications, cortical bone fractures, muscle weakness, joint or bone pain that affects quality of life, paritis, skin lesions that affect quality of life, and then anyone that's waiting a kidney transplant that has severe hypercalcemia. We do tend to see patients for those indications. But I do think in general, these patients are under-referred. Um, the one thing I do is I always look at patients that are referred for anything, adrenal 
thyroid parathyroid disease and decide whether or not they have secondary tertiary hyperparathyroidism. And if I think they meet criteria for parathyroidectomy, I'll call the nephrologist and talk to them about that patient and whether or not they need a parathyroid surgery. I think the most important thing right now is that we need to open a dialogue with our nephrologists and let them know that we understand this disease process um, and that we're on the same page. Great. So Herb, you've, you've watched this evolve over a good amount of time and, and how do you frame you know, your decision-making in, in terms of a decision tree, in terms of it's a little different for secondary hyperparathyroidism uh, and tertiary hyperparathyroidism. So how, how do you think through that when somebody's in your office as to who uh, warrants an operation and maybe explain kind of how that's changed over time? No, I think that's a great uh, point to make. So I think to go over the definition or what people think when they talk about secondary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism, often when people are talking about secondary hyperparathyroidism, it's uh, when the patient that you see has not had a kidney transplantation versus tertiary hyperparathyroidism, people tend to refer to patients who have had a kidney transplantation and a post-kidney transplantation. So if you're seeing a patient before uh, kidney transplantation, uh, most of the time when they develop hyperparathyroidism due to their chronic kidney disease, it is managed with the calcium mimetics and other things. But in general, the advent of calcium mimetics, uh, which almost all patients who are on dialysis are on, has generally led to the medical management, the successful management of secondary hyperparathyroidism. So we do not see as many patients, perhaps, that we used to see because of that reason. But however, because now nephrologists aren't often used to sending patients to consider surgery in the era of calcium medics, um, I think what has happened is that they hardly send anyone for surgery, even though... The guidelines um, from uh, all the uh, kidney-based societies suggest that these patients benefit from surgical intervention if their PTH is above nine times the normal limits. So today, I think we have to be a little more uh, um, outspoken, and we have to talk to our nephrologist to let them know that you know surgery is still an important option for patients whose medical management isn't ideal with calcium medics. And I see so many times where they try to manage calcium medics where the PTH is more than nine times, way above nine times, but they still don't get us involved. So, so the first point is, is I think we need to really advocate and work with our colleagues to, so we see more of these patients because I think they can benefit from us. On a related uh, topic to those patients, I think we don't really know if these patients would be better served by surgery uh, before they get their kidney transplant to manage their PTHs. So I think it would be a great opportunity to actually do a clinical trial where we randomize patients before kidney transplantation who have elevated PTH to get um, parathyroidectomy versus not. But until we have that data, currently the the standard is to manage medically, and if you can keep the PTH under nine times, great. If you can't, then they should see a surgeon. Or if they develop any of the complications of secondary hyperparathyroidism, like calciphylaxis, puritis, or others, which are described in our paper. Now, if you flip it to tertiary hyperparathyroidism, or when they have a kidney transplantation, 
we used to believe that the majority of patients after kidney transplantation were cured of their hyperparathyroidism. But actually, recent data uh, from our group that was just presented at the American Surgical just uh, a few weeks ago um, suggests that instead of perhaps 75 to 90% of patients resolving their hyperparathyroidism after kidney transplant, it's actually the reverse. We believe that only 25% at best do, and 75% have persistent hyperparathyroidism. And I think it's the, uh, that's another point, is that these patients who are in, mostly under the care of transplant nephrologists and transplant surgeons are not don't always follow PTH as aggressively, but uh, they think that that just goes away. But I think uh, another education point is patients post-transplantation you got to check their PTHs, and if their PTH is still elevated six months after kidney transplant, which is going to be the vast majority, they should be sent over to an endocrine surgery, a surgeon for evaluation for possible parathyroidectomy. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, and I wanted to bring that up. Um, is in the guidelines you talk about kind of length of time to wait um, to see if if their PTH is going to go down, right? Um, and and it used to be a kind of a hard cutoff of a year, and then over time it's backed up a little bit to um, uh, six months, three months sometimes, when you know somebody's just not going to resolve. And and so I'm just interested to hear from from everybody else, um, you know, if you've been able, I know our transplant surgeons have been more aggressive in referring patients early. Um, one of the things that that um, I, I don't like to see is that patients go back on a calcium emetic because I think they just need to be, they just need to have surgery. Um, and, and otherwise you're putting that precious resource of a transplant at risk, right? When you've waited years sometimes. Um, so, so what are your thoughts on, should, should we be pushing to, to see these patients earlier after transplant? Should we back it up from a year, six months earlier, or are there ways to predict before their transplant that they're not going to resolve? And do we need to fix that before? Yeah. What do you think, Sophie? I don't think we know when they're going to resolve. There's, and if you look through the nephrology data, they have um, these long-term studies that say you initially resolve, and then people's PTH calciums can then go up again and then resolve in the long term, and that can take almost a year. The reason we put in referral at six months is because if their PTH levels are not resolved at that point, they should really be talking to an endocrine surgeon or someone that's going to do parathyroidectomy um, because these patients are complicated and they, it can take them some time to get to the OR. And we don't want them to have a delay in care once we say, yes, this person definitely needs parathyroidectomy. Um, so if you're waiting until they need it, then you're behind. And then you're, you're right, your transplant is at risk. So that's why we want people seen earlier. And then if we don't operate on them, we don't operate on them. But they at least need to be considered early on, in my opinion. Yeah, I wonder sometimes, th I think it's easy in uh, probably the nephrologists are used to putting people back or putting people on calcium and they just leave them on. So I wonder, you know, how many of these patients with tertiary hyperparathyroidism, um, you know, resolve or uh, get put back on calcimimetics and just stay on them because yeah. it's easy to do rather than yeah. fi fixing them and, and taking care of that kidney. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast.
Easier said, done. Okay. Well, uh, now that we've talked about kind of evaluation and decision for surgery, Sophie, how do you go about preparing a patient for surgery? Is, is the pre-op evaluation and preparation different in a specific population? And, and maybe discuss the patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism um, who are on dialysis first and, and then talk about other special considerations in patients who are post-transplant who may be on steroids and anti-rejection medications. Yeah, so I assess their cardiovascular risk the same way I would any other patient. Um, then secondary hyperparathyroid patients, I think it's really important to have a sense of their electrolyte status and optimize them in the perioperative period, especially in that day before. Um, and then if they are on dialysis, they should be having ideally dialysis within 24 hours before surgery. So they can maintain their dialysis schedule. And if they need to adjust it so that they're having uh, dialysis the day before or that morning, then that's a, a, what should be happening. Um, if they're not on calcitriol, um, putting them on calcitriol for at least two days before parathyroidectomy has been shown to reduce the risk of developing hungry bone and to mitigate the symptoms of that. Um, so it's beneficial to do that in that first two days right before surgery. Um, so with steroids and anti-rejection medications, I always approach steroids, um, and this is kind of in our guidelines, the same way I would for primary hyperparathyroidism or um, thyroid disease. So preoperative steroid, like one-time dose, helps with postoperative nausea vomiting. Um, so we did recommend that that should be considered. If they're on higher dose long-term steroids, and that should be a stress dose, should be in given if it's indicated, just based on general surgery guidelines. Um, Anti-rejection medications usually can be continued, but it's really important to decide whether or not they're going to stop. I think the one big limitation is with like thyroid, parathyroid surgery, we don't know what some of these anti-rejection medications do in terms of healing. Um, so it, it's just important to think about it, though. Great. Um, so we should probably talk a little bit about imaging as well, because we, we're often looking for an enlarged or hyperactive gland with imaging in patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. Is this necessary when patients are going to be undergoing a foregland exploration? Uh, what, what would be the reasons for obtaining imaging in, in these patients, and what type of imaging would you obtain? So I would at least get an ultrasound, personally. There might be some differing opinions in this room um, <laughs> to look for concomitant thyroid nodules because you want to treat those patients if they have a thyroid nodule um, the way you would a parathyroid patient because um, if they have a thyroid cancer, you want to make sure you're taking care of it at the same time. I think the one important thing is if you do find a thyroid cancer, that their long-term mortality is not affected. And so it should, if they are on a transplant list, it's important to document that that's not going to affect their longevity. And so they shouldn't be taken off a transplant list for having a low-risk thyroid cancer. Um, you can also get, if they have normal kidney function, a CT scan um, or a cystomimi scan if, they, if you're trying to preserve kidney function. Um, at my In my practice, we tend to get two images, so an ultrasound and a cystomimi scan to rule out ectopics. Is there a tertiary? Yeah. To rule out ectopics um, that you might not see on your ultrasound. Yeah, I think that's a good point you brought up about ectopic or supernumerary glands. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I, I also agree uh, an ultrasound is is my personal preference as well to look for concomitant thyroid nodules. Usually I'll see multiple glands. I don't expect to see all of them necessarily. It just kind of gives me a general idea of kind of what I may be dealing with in terms of 
position or something. It doesn't mean that I need it to find them in the operating room because I'm perfectly comfortable doing a foreground exploration without it. But I do like to, to scan uh, up the carotid sheaths, uh, especially up high. And, uh, and, and that's only because of personal experience of, of having, uh, you know, not, um, not been able to find a gland or something because it's sitting up high and that makes it easy for me to, to find it there. Um, and then I do, I do know that, uh, some surgeons will get Sestamibi scans for the same reason to look for ectopic or supernumerary glands. But, but what's your, What's your stance on this, Herb? I'm getting chest pain just listening to this. <laughs> the, uh, and, I, and I understand that some of our listeners may have to take standardized exams where the answer is almost always in a patient with hyperparathyroid is getting ultrasound throughout thyroid disease. But um, there is data, including a paper that we wrote, basically saying that most of the thyroid disease we find is benign thyroid disease or microcancers, which we're over-treating. As, as you guys know, a great topic this meeting is the over-treatment of thyroid cancer. And so I would just extend that. Well, I think we over-treat thyroid nodules right now. And I think getting an ultrasound promotes that. But that aside, um, I would say that in general, there's great data to show that if you're, whether it's primary, secondary, or tertiary, if you look at a group of patients who you do imaging on and that you don't and look at the endpoint, which is cure, there's no data to say that the outcomes are better with imaging. And in fact, there's data to say that they're exactly the same, at least for primary. I'm not sure it's been that well looked at for secondary because the incidence of ectopic glands is about 2%. And if you think about ectopic glands, which a Barb Miller wouldn't find, that's even lower than that. So really what we're doing is we're imaging, you take 100 patients, we're imaging 100 patients that maybe benefit one, if that. So, and I think with the amount of money we spend on healthcare, which is way too much, is that we have to look at ways where, is it really going to affect the outcome? Um, the patient's outcome, not the surgeon's comfort level, but the patient's outcome. And I think in the vast majority of cases, we don't need imaging, especially with the good foreground exploration. So... I don't routinely image patients who with secondary tertiary hyperparathyroidism who are going to have surgery. And, you know, this is an argument that we have within our, within our group and within, uh, I think, a group of endon surgeons. But really, if you look at the data, the ectopic glands that you won't get are the really the deep media style ones that you can't get. And the incidence of those is really, really low. So, yeah. Barb Miller's going to find one in the crowd, the chief, whether or not she has an imaging scan or not. So I think that that's my opinion. But, you know, this is really debatable. And I'd say, like, um, what I often tell our residents, if you're taking your boards, you should image the heck out of these patients because <laughs> uh, you're getting no penalized for doing that. But in practice, I really think we should use it judiciously. Yeah, I think the I think that's a great point is that um... – for foregland exploration, we've done them for over 100 years, and we never did imaging in the cure rate, and this was in primary hyperparathyroidism. Cure rate is 98%. Um, and so um, I think that those of us who um, are high-volume parathyroid surgeons, because we've been in situations where we have those rare cases that, that there's a parathyroid gland up by the jaw, 
um, or in a very, very strange place where we spent hours looking for something or drawing PTH levels or something like that and, and levels are not coming down, um, that, that we may, just because we have easy access to ultrasounds in our office, that it's easy for us to do. Um, but I think um, you're exactly right that uh, a traditional foregland exploration, you, you, know, you have a biochemical diagnosis, you do not need to do imaging for that patient. Yeah, I think that as surgeons, you know, our tendency is we want to be perfect. So for that one parathyroid remiss, we think, oh my God, we could if we'd done imaging. Or perhaps that one, if you have like a failed hernia repair, you change all your, what you do based on that one thing that you think you did wrong, that you did for a hundred patients and it was okay. So as in a surgeon, we just try to be perfectionists and we just have to sort of avoid changing our practice based on something that only happens to us once. Yeah. So Jessica, with the uh, preoperative evaluation, um, tell us a little bit about the morbidity and mortality rate for patients with chronic kidney disease and stage renal disease on dialysis and those who've undergone renal transplant um, as it's higher than for other patients undergoing parathyroidectomy for primary hyperparathyroidism and, and other elective general surgery cases. So um, can, can you um, tell us a little bit about the differences in risk? Yeah, unfortunately, patients with chronic kidney disease represent a high-risk population, and so they have a high rate, or they have high rates of concomitant atherosclerotic and calcific coronary artery disease, calcific valvular, valvular disease, uh, peripheral arterial disease, and even heart, heart failure. They have high rates of adverse perioperative outcomes, including AKI, cardiovascular events, um, and mortality even. And so preoperatively, they really should be assessed for these things. Um, a cardiovascular risk assessment, checking for any coagulopathy, hypertension. You also have to consider in this population any immunosuppression they may be on and then whether they are on dialysis and what kind of timing for the dialysis uh, they have. And so one of the studies looking at outcomes for elective surgery in patients over the age of 65 on chronic dialysis found that their 30-day mortality rate was 12.7% compared to uh, a group not on dialysis, which was only 1.5% without any kidney disease. Um, however, this study only looked at less than 6% of the patients actually underwent head and neck surgery and so may not completely be applicable in this patient population. Okay, great. So the guidelines, they do mention the importance of multidisciplinary communication as a contribution to optimal patient outcomes. Sophie, tell us how this works at, at your institution at Medical College of Wisconsin. Yeah, so it's, we start before we even see the patient. So I always review the records and decide what I think is appropriate for that patient. Um, and then that they, I was, what I can sense from their chart review whether or not they've had optimal medical management. So I look for vitamin D analogs and then calcium emetics. Um, that kind of gets me to the point where sometimes calcium medics are tried and it's in the dialysis record and not in the EMR. So it's really important to call someone to see if they've been on an IV calcium medic in dialysis. Um, and sometimes they've been stopped um, for really specific reasons. So sometimes when I talk to the nephrologist, they'll say they tried a calcium medic. Um, that was kind of the direction they were going in, but then the patient got hypercalcemic on that. So I think in my mind, that's kind of a secondary to tertiary transition just in the early phases. So I always kind of get a sense of that. Um, and then once I've made a decision, I kind of call a nephrologist, make sure we're on the same page about their goal for their treatment, and then talk to a transplant nephrologist too if they have one to see if they're potentially going to get a transplant. Um, if I'm really worried about prolonged hungry bone or I'm not sure 
um, that the nephrologist and I are going to agree on what their pro prolonged postoperative course are. I make sure that we kind of talk to the point where we agree with what their postoperative trajectory is going to look like and whether or not that's aligned with the patient's goals. Um, and then once we do surgery, I call them and make sure they're around to help with the postoperative management um, and the dialysis and all that. As we reach the end of the first of this two-part series, we'd like to offer the following takeaway points for part one. Number one, renally-mediated hyperparathyroidism is very different from primary hyperparathyroidism. Number two, it's important to know the medications commonly used to treat patients with renal dysfunction, their mechanisms of action, and how they impact evaluation and management. Number three, it's critical to perform a thorough biochemical evaluation to differentiate between the different types of parathyroid disorders. Number four, indications for surgery in patients with renally mediated parathyroid disorders are quite different than in patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. Recognize when patients should be offered surgery. And finally, number five, good coordination and communication from a multidisciplinary team is important to optimal care in patients with renally mediated disease especially in renal transplant patients. I thank Dr. Dream, Dr. Chen, Dr. McMullen for sharing their expertise with us. This document is uh, extremely important as it's really the first set of surgical guidelines to tackle these two similar but different and often overlooked disease processes. Again, this is available through the Annals of Surgery as well as the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons website at www.endocrinesurgery.org. Uh, there are other guidelines for thyroidectomy, parathyroidectomy, for primary hyperparathyroidism, and adrenalectomy that are also housed there. Let's, Let's go, go dominate, dominate the, the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.